Man, you better get off of me. You know I'm going around you every time. I'm way too quick for you, boy. Got no chance. Ref, get this guy off of me. Get him off me, ref. Just because he's too slow, don't make him be hand-checking me. I'm knocking down three-pointers three pointers in his face today. Get him off of me. Get him off of me. Too quick for you, man. Oh. Oh. Hello. No, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't applaud for that. Oh, my. I didn't know you all were out here. Oof. My name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free now. <laughs> and I'm so glad you didn't know me 15 years ago. If you're new here, welcome. We're a casual church. <laughs> you know, I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. As a freshman in college, and life kind of came into technicolor for me after I did. It was in black and white, and then after I surrendered my life to the Lord, I experienced Christ just pretty dramatically changing a lot of things about me. Some gradually and slowly, but others in terms of respect for authority and my unceasing pride and the way I treated women. In a number of different areas, I saw substantial and dramatic change almost, almost instantaneously within at least a couple years. And slowly but surely, gradually, God's been changing me ever since. And when I first became a Christian as a freshman in college, I remember thinking, my, if, if God did that for me, if He so loved me as to go up to that cross... Through his son Jesus Christ, when I was desperate, the only natural thing would be to give my all to him. That'd be the only responsible reaction to say, if you gave it all for me, then, then I'll give my all for you. Your holiness demands my wholeness, as we talked about last week. Accept the round ball. I remember telling the Lord, No, this is mine. This is mine. Every other part of my life, quickly, over the next several years, one by one, I was convicted of my areas of failure, and they were baptized, as you will. My wallet was baptized. My pride was baptized. The way I related to other people, the way I related to my parents, all of that went down into the waters, so to speak, and I experienced a change, except for with the round ball. This was mine. This is mine. I told the Lord. You got an area of your life, you say, boy, this is mine. This is mine. Get your hands off of that, God. For me, again, it was, it was this. And I'm ashamed to say it now, but 15, 16 years ago, you, you wouldn't have liked being around me, especially on the basketball court. I remember uh, one time... Uh, older Christian friend when I was a junior in college, a senior in college, a man I looked up to, he, he, he said, Adrian, your behavior is terrible on the basketball court. You need to change this. You talk trash to people. You glare at the referees. Why are you always angry out there? And I said, well, that's just part of basketball. You know, I mean, talking trash is perfected on the black court. And then by Russell Westbrook. And 
Charles Barkley and Larry Bird and a whole bunch of them. I mean, it's just part and parcel of the game. So I can act like all the rest while when I'm out here. And he said, no, your, your behavior is inexcusable and you're ruining your witness to other people by the way you act out there. I remember one time, particularly poignantly, that I realized something had to change. My beloved father was in the stands watching a game. And I was already a follower of Christ at this time. And I was playing pretty well that night, if I do say so myself. There it is. Come back. My ego was getting the better of me. And I was knocking down three-pointers and going around my man and breaking his ankles, at least in my dreams. And uh, I was talking louder and louder to him and glaring at the referee until at one point I looked up into the stands and I saw my dad. And he was shaking his head, my beloved father, shaking his head. And then I watched him walk out of the gym and not come back. Because he was ashamed of how his son was acting. I slowly realized that something needed to change, that even this had to go into the baptismal waters, if you will. That it wouldn't suffice any longer to act a certain way on the basketball court on Thursday evening in even rec center league games and then go to Campus Crusade for Christ gatherings at University of Denver on Saturday. And then go to church on Sunday morning. And I, yeah, I was one of those, I still am, that raised my hand as I worship. And I mean, I'm around guys who watched the way I played just a couple days ago and say, oh, the hypocrisy of this guy. Mm. Mm-mm. Eventually, I had to put the basketball down for a season and just get away from it. I'm sure if I was on Drake Baranek's team, he would have just kicked me off, and rightfully so. I had to put it down and get away from it. And I look at that time in my life, and I say, how could I do that? But I tell you what, it also really helps me to look back at that time in my life particularly when we enter into the episode of the scriptures called the period of the judges. The judges. Because, well, when you come to judges, you see this ugly cycle that we'll look at this morning. You say, how could they ever do that? How could they possibly go into the same piggish behavior again and again and again? Who were these people? Until you look at your own life and you look in the mirror and you realize in lowercase letters, at least I have done the same thing. Anyone else? So Judges begins with God giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites on a silver platter. And if you remember the context here, the Israelites, well, were slaves in Egypt. And they cried out to God because of their oppression at this wicked hand of Egyptian slavery. And God hears their cry, and he responds. And you see this in Exodus chapter 3. God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Israel. My people, Israel, in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to help, to bring them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course, that's exactly what God did just a couple generations ago before we get to the, the time of the judges. He brings these plagues on Pharaoh, 
and then the Israelites are let to be free. And after they're free, they go across the Red Sea as God parts the Red Sea for them to walk right through it as we just sang about. And they go through the wilderness wanderings. And as they're in the wilderness for a number of years, God provides for them each and every day. And some of the most beautiful portraits come out of the book of Deuteronomy where God provides manna and quail for them on a daily basis. Not enough food for tomorrow, only enough food for today. Give us today our daily bread. They got to live that. And it's a warning to us not to hoard That's how they were living for many, many years. And then they have the tabernacle with them. And and with the tabernacle, you have the fire by night to give them light and the cloud by day to give them a protection from the Lord. The very presence of God is with them. They cross over the Jordan Rivers we talked about last week. They go into the land of Canaan. And there's this conquest where God gives them this land and they defeat all of their enemies. And he serves all this up for them on a silver platter. And then comes Judges, which is the most depressing book, in my opinion, in all the Bible. Take a look at this video. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. 
So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a God, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. 
These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of First Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Pretty dark, huh? There are portions of the Bible that are rated R, and this is one of them. And it's a very dark, as you just heard, sobering description of the human condition when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the BibleProject.com. We've used a video from them one time before. If you're looking at kind of overviews for these large meta-narrative sections of the Bible that we've been going through, I encourage you to go to that site. It is pure gold. It's such a great site to summarize these large portions of Scripture that we tend sometimes to just avoid. And the thing that I hope you get out of that episode that we just learned about in seven minutes is this cycle That as Israel blends into the culture around them, as I, with the basketball, blended in to the culture around me, there are certain terrible consequences. This is what Israel does for the period of 300 years. God serves it all up for them on a silver platter, and then they devolve into sin, And their sin looks like this. Yes, God, I know that you've given us these Ten Commandments. I know that you've blessed us in order that we be a blessing to other people. But we're going to do what we want. And I'll take a little bit of this. I'll take this commandment. But that one, eh, no thanks. And I'll take this one, but no thanks to that one. And all these different foreign gods, maybe they can bring us good luck as well. So I'll worship at the, the God of their making as well. These foreign idols or the God of mammon, the God of money, whatever it might be. And they just took a little bit of Judaism and then kind of mixed it together with their own thinking. Just like many people we meet today are kind of cafeteria Christians. I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And this sin resulted for them in just blending in with the culture around them. And as they continued down this path, God actually used the surrounding nations, the Midianites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, to chastise Israel. Remember, there's no double standard between Israel and the other nations. God's holiness demands our wholeness. He wanted their all, and so he chastises them. He corrects them. He admonishes them, and he even uses these foreign nations to rule over them. They're oppressed for seasons by these foreign nations because they simply adopted the culture that they were in. This is a really, really big deal because the culture that they were in was so incredibly wicked. I mean, it was a culture that mistreated the poor, 
that showed no kindness to the immigrant, a culture that practiced child sacrifice, that practiced polygamy, and on and on we could go. And they just started to blend in with that and take it in for themselves. And so God says, okay, if you're going to do that, you're going to be disciplined and severely. Eventually they come to their senses and they repent. They recognize that, that, that we've been living according to our ways, doing what's right in our eyes, as opposed to following the Ten Commandments that were given to, to us, as opposed to following the God of Abraham. And they fall to their knees and they repent. And God delivers. He forgives them. And he delivers them through the hand of any number of different judges. And these judges rise up and the judges give correction for a time and they release Israel from their enemies. They win battles for Israel and they win peace for the land. And as they repent, these judges come into power and deliver them. And occasionally these judges were people of good character. And then oftentimes they were not, and they just started to mimic the culture around them as well. So you look at Ehud and a portion of Gideon's story and Deborah's story. Those were good judges, at least for a season. And Deborah actually won peace for the Israelites for 40 years and destroyed the, the false altars to Baal and, and sought to bring people back to God. She was perhaps the very best judge in this season. They begin to provide some structure for the people, and oftentimes they refocused Israel on monotheistic worship and on caring for their neighbor. But then they fall into sin once again, and the cycle continues again and again and again across 300 very long years. Here's one of the summary statements in the book of Judges out of chapter 2. It says, then the Lord raised up judges in the midst of this chastisement. He raises up judges who saved them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but instead they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them, defying the first and the second commandments that God had given. Eventually he rattles them some more. They go through this cycle woe once again. They repent and they get, del they get deliverance. And I'd love to say that by the end of the book, they live happily ever after. But it just doesn't happen. It gets worse and worse across the entirety of this episode of their history. And the summary statement, as you already heard, four different times at the end of the book of Judges is this. In those days when they had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I'll be Lord. I'll be God over my life. I'll take this little domain of life and I'll say to you, God, no hands on this. This is mine, like I unfortunately did with this. That's what they said. They did what was right in their own eyes. And then you move on to 1 Samuel, and you see them begging and crying to God, would you give us a king like we could be like all the other nations around us. We want to be just like them. We don't want to not have a king like all the other nations. We want to have a king just like them. And they're crying out to God for a king because they wouldn't settle for God himself as their king. And this is the way the story ends. 
at the end of Judges. Here's a simple fact for all of us. We have to look at the different domains of our life, the different areas of struggle, and we have to ask ourselves, who will have authority in this area? Who will have sovereignty in this area of my life? And we always have a choice. Will I take sovereignty in this area of my life, whatever it might be for you? Or will I give sovereignty over this area of life to the place that it belongs, to God himself? And we regularly do an inventory of different areas of life that we would say, no, I've taken that for myself. I've got to give it back to God. This is an autobiography in five chapters, certainly of the judges, but I could say it's an autobiography of my life, at least related to the round ball. Perhaps you could think of an area of your life as well. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It's the referee's fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in it. It's a habit. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. You see, in the book of Judges, Israel never makes the wise decision to walk down a different street. What are you looking at right now that you have to walk down a different street? in order to avoid some kind of temptation that you know is lurking right around the corner. You see, here's the deal that Judges reinforces for us. My main problems don't come from New York City. They don't come from Las Vegas. They don't come from Omaha. They don't come from Kearney. They come from right here. Right here. Most of my problems are my problem. Would you agree? Okay, if you agree, say that with me. Most of my problems are my problems. I make most of my problems. Now, not all of them. We all go through things where someone's done us wrong, and God will one day redeem that. I pray that you know it. But most of the problems that I deal with on a regular basis are my problems. The root of so many problems is a peaceful coexistence with sin. Please write this down. The root of so many problems in our lives is a peaceful coexistence with sin. In Israel, that meant a peaceful coexistence, a winking, if you will, at the idolatry of the nations around them, in which they prostituted themselves to these gods, in which they didn't care for the poor among them, in which they practiced polygamy, just like the nations around them, and things went all awry, in which they said, come on, God, like, is it really that big of a deal? Like, do I have to really follow all ten of these commandments? I mean, like, can I just go with the flow? I mean, whatever. Can I just live whatever? Well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen today, would it? No one would say that today, would they? Oh, whatever. Eh. No, that, that's kind of the way we live today. Like, I don't want to be intolerant. That's what they did. That's what they did. 
And then out of that, because they lived that way for a long enough time, eventually they started intermarrying themselves to people who practiced diametrically opposed beliefs. And as they intermarried with people who practiced diametrically opposed beliefs, they took on those beliefs to themselves. It says in Judges chapter 3, they took their daughters in marriage and they gave their own daughters to their sons and they then served their gods. It's this peaceful coexistence with what I know to be opposed to the will of God that we wink at that for a long enough time and eventually it just starts to get in us and we say, uh, what's the big deal? There's a huge, huge danger there. Uh, let me just say here that this has nothing to do with interracial marriage. Racists from the South back in the 19th century used to say that, but Judges 3 has nothing to do with interracial marriage. It has to do with not binding yourself to someone who has a religious belief that is opposed to yours, such that an atheist, you know, the, pros the prospect of being a Christian and marrying an atheist should be a non-starter. Because eventually, over time, what will happen is you will take on some of their views, and you'll just kind of wink at that view and say, what's the big deal? From time to time, couples will ask me to marry them who have different religious viewpoints. Maybe the man is a Christian, and the woman is New Age. She's kind of polytheistic. She worships a number of different gods and doesn't really have a framework for objective religious truth of any kind. And they ask me to marry them and they're convinced that love will conquer all. And I have to tell them in the kindest way possible, are you out of your mind? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. No way. It won't work that way. What will happen is you will enter into a tug of war. And eventually, you will be tempted to give up the rough edges of what you believe. And so I have to say, no, I understand you might see me as intolerant, but for your benefit, I have to say no. And I've lost friendships over that, my friends. I've lost friendships over that. That's not easy, but out of love and out of a demand for God's holiness and his justice, we say, am I intermarrying myself with some sin? Am I peacefully coexisting with that which opposes the will of God? Have you heard the saying, we make our choices and then our choices make us? So true. No truer words. We make our choices and then our choices slowly but surely, gradually, they make us. So when you see someone fall off a cliff, they didn't just fall off a cliff. It was a number of very small trespasses crossed over the course of time, surely, gradually, small degrees, until one day they fall off the cliff and this great fence is broken and they can never go back. It's the small things of saying, I will not coexist with this. I refuse that. Now, what does that look like for you, not to coexist with sin? It's going to be different for every one of us. I think of a friend who loves to watch college and professional football games with his boys. And he also has a DVR. He purchased a DVR so that he could start the college football games one hour after they begin. 
and thereby fast forward through all of the commercials and the half-naked cheerleaders and all the first-person shooter games and all the violent commercials that come on the scene. He's not willing to give up college football. I'm not willing to give up March Madness. But what do you do to guard yourself as you watch? We taught our boys, starting at age three, that when commercials come on that are violent, you look away. Don't let that stuff get into your brain. When stuff comes on that's partial nudity, look away. Don't allow that stuff into your mind. I think of another man who uh, admitted to me that he is inclined toward gossip. And he's inclined toward criticizing those who hold different beliefs than his. Criticizing whole groups of people who hold different beliefs than his. And so he's had to guard what he writes such that he edits everything that he says before he pushes send. That he edits everything that he says before he posts on social media for the world to see. Why? Because he doesn't want to take on the philosophy and the way of doing things that exist in the culture all around us. He wants to actually be nice. What a beautiful thing. That's how we stand apart from the culture in a countercultural way for good. Please hear me. The last thing I'm suggesting is any kind of legalism. If you've been around Carney E. Free for any amount of time, you heard my teaching for any amount of time, I hate legalism. It does nothing for the soul. What I'm talking about is not blending in with the culture that you take on its mores and values. Jesus said this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You've all heard that. This is high priestly prayer when he's praying for his disciples, when he's praying for each one of us before he dies. And he prays for the disciples, God, don't take them out of the world. The world needs them so bad. The world needs their salt. The world needs their light. The world needs them to be a lighthouse so bad. There's such a great need for Christians to be in the world, firmly planted, making a difference, blooming wherever God has launched us. But keep them from evil. Keep them from evil. As maybe you were taught as a kid, may we be in the world but not in the world but not of the world. And so we just learn to walk this tightrope. We recognize that we have both. That we say, I got to be in the world, I got to be with people in the midst of their mess, and yet at the same time, as I follow Jesus, I stay far away from what he is opposed to. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it so beautifully. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And what you could do there is insert any number of different synonyms of hurting people. Look after single moms or single dads in their distress. Look after hurting people in their distress. Be with them. Be in the mess with them. Yet, at the same time, keep yourself pure and unspotted from the world. It's this tightrope that if you want holiness, somehow you have to get both of those. Bill Hybels says, sometimes if you want to make a difference in the world, you got to sit in the smoking section you got to make a choice to go sit with people who are hurting, even if you may not like their behavior. 
and ask God, help me not to take their behavior onto me. Now, there's limits to all of this. If you struggle with drunkenness, you'd be very wise not to go to the sports bar. You hear what I'm saying? In the world, yet not of the world. But Christians for far too long have done one of these two. They've gone in the world and become completely immersed by it, just blending in with the world. Or they've exited themselves from the world and they become a fortress. And what ends up happening is Christians, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., become a thermometer that reflects the culture around them rather than a thermostat that changes the culture around them. Did you hear that? This is what God calls us to. This is what, in fact, Martin Luther King was calling the church in the deep south to, was be a thermometer for change, which comes just from the lips of Jesus. Be in the world, yet not of the world. A thermometer that changes the culture around us, even as we guard against sin, which is always knocking at the door. So what's your round ball? What is it for you? Where you just blend into the culture around you. It was so significant for me. This was my first love. It was so significant for me that I had to put this down for several seasons because I couldn't figure out how to be competitive yet loving to those who I played against. I couldn't figure it out. And God disciplined me. He chastised me. I lost respect of so many people that I could have influenced for good. I lost my reputation for a season because of how I acted in this one area of life. Now I want to give thanks that God has changed me. Maybe not all the way, but I've picked the round ball back up and I've figured out, I think for the most part, how I can be both a competitive man and a loving man in this area of life that is so beloved yet so challenging for me. What is it for you? In the days of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they blended in with the culture around them. What if we said, at Carnegie Free, everyone did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and submitted each and every area to him? Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, as I reflect upon my own life, I just have to thank you. <laughs> you are such a kind and generous, compassionate, loving, and forgiving God. You chastised me as a loving father does. You admonished me as a loving father does. And yet you have forgiven me again and again and again and again. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. I thank you, God, that you call us to a third way than the world around us, not to take on, not to blend in with the culture at large, 
nor do you call us to separate ourselves from the culture at large. You call us to be different. A countercultural influence for good. To be in, yet not of this world. We admit to you that's hard because it feels at times like our world is spinning out of control and it's so messy. It's so messy. And it's so ugly at times. And so there's something in most of us that we want to retreat. And it could be that there's some area in your life that you have to retreat for a season, and that's okay. But it's for a purpose, to be healed by God and to enter back in and to bloom where you're planted that the world around you might know that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's for this that we pray, God, that you make us holy, you make us different, you set us apart. You are the only wise God, and we trust that you can do it. And so we worship you.